For many generations, Christians here in America have enjoyed home field advantage. This doesn't mean that every single individual has been a Christian, but at the same time, when you look at the values of society, they have been shaped by and large by the biblical worldview. And on top of this, uh, church attendance has been prioritized by a major portion of the population down through the last couple hundred years. But society is changing in some big ways. The Pew Research Center just recently put out the results of a survey that showed that here in America, Americans who identify as Christian have decreased by 12% in the last decade. I mean, think about that. Ten years, a 12% decrease in those who identify as Christian. And on top of that, corresponding with that, the involvement in Christian ministries of all types has been noticeably declining in recent years. And the values of, of society have also been changing. And so it's pretty evident that, evident that Christians no longer have home field advantage in the same way that we have for generations in the past. And this is very disconcerting for many people, to say the least. And we look at the current presidential election, and that just highlights how concerning uh, the, the dynamics are for many, many people. But the question we're looking at today is this. As citizens of God's kingdom, how do we engage the culture when we don't have home field advantage? When we don't have home field advantage, how do we engage with the culture and the Bible actually has a lot to say about this because especially in the New Testament, it's actually assumed that Christians don't have home field advantage. The Apostle Peter, for instance, in 1 Peter, says that Christians are foreigners and exiles in this world because our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And so as citizens of God's kingdom, how do we engage the culture when we don't have home field advantage? If you're following along in the Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29. Let me give you some background uh, context of Jeremiah 29. Back in 587 BC, the Babylonian Empire destroyed Judah. Judah was the southern part of the nation of Israel. And they, they killed many people. And most of the survivors, survivors were taken into Babylon, which was in modern-day Iraq. And they were taken there because part of the strategy of the Babylonian Empire was that when they conquered a people, after killing a lot of people and just dismantling their society, they would take survivors back into Babylon and try to uh, assimilate them into Babylonian culture. And by doing so, their goal was that these conquered peoples would be less likely to revolt against the Babylonian Empire. And also, by their presence there in the empire, they would actually strengthen the empire. So this was a strategy. You had a lot of Israelites who now are transplanted in exile into Babylon. And writing to those exiles was Jeremiah, the prophet from God. And God had a message he wanted to deliver to the exiles. And it came in the form of a letter that was dictated by Jeremiah. And we see that letter in Jeremiah 29. Verse 1 says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So that's some of the background. Now, the letter starts in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now in this passage it was written 2,500 years ago but it's incredibly relevant for us. And from this passage, I want to pour out, pull out four keys for engaging our culture. And the first key is to remember who the king is. And that's king with a capital K. We are called to remember where our ultimate allegiance lies. The letter begins by saying in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Now this term Lord of hosts is probably not one that we use very much. I mean, I address God in prayer as Father, or as Lord, or dear God, or stuff like that. But Lord of hosts refers to the fact that God is the commander-in-chief of a massive army of angels. The Lord of hosts. And these angels are so much more powerful than any human army, including the Babylonian army. And so it's a reminder that God is still king, even though the Babylonian army has conquered Judah. On top of this, take a look in this passage at who uh, really authorized or was responsible for the destruction of Judah. God says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. It's God who's taking responsibility for this. Ultimately, it was not the Babylonian Empire who was responsible for destroying Judah. I mean, they had a role in it. Ultimately, God was the one who was taking responsibility because he had made a covenant with the people of Judah. And in this covenant, Judah had disobeyed God over and over and over, breaking that covenant. And part of that agreement, that covenant, was that there was a warning that if Israel, if Judah broke that covenant, God would send them into exile. And so God was the one who authorized and actually sent the Babylonian army to take over Judah. And so it's very clear here that God is still sovereign, that he is still king, that even though Judah is now in foreign land, even though they no longer have home field advantage, that God is still king. I think that's a good reminder for us as well, because in our society, there's a lot that's going on that causes us concern. There's a lot that reminds us that you know, Christians don't really have home field advantage any longer. We have to remember no matter what is happening in our society, no matter what is changing, no matter who even the president is, that God is still king. That is something that we deeply need to remember at all times. Now, there is still a practical challenge. Even as God is reminding them and us that he is king, still there is life to be lived. And for the, the people of Judah living in exile, it was very clear that they were in a foreign land. Things did not taste and smell and look the same as they did back at home. There were altars to pagan gods all over Babylon. It was very clear that they were foreigners, that this was not their homeland. And so they had to figure out, how do we live when we are in a land that does not align with God? And so that's why God gives them practical instruction in verses 5 and 6. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take, sons for your, or take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may have sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. And you read that and it sounds remarkably mundane. It sounds like God's just saying, hey, do normal human things. 
But if you read between the lines here, it is clear that God has another message for them. And that message is the second key for engaging culture when we don't have home field advantage. And that is don't depend on a quick fix. Don't depend on a quick fix. Back among the people of Judah who were in exile, they were false prophets who were going around delivering messages that they said were from God, but instead they were not from God. They were, they were just you know, tickling people's ears, giving people what they wanted to hear. The false prophets were saying, well, you guys won't be here very long at all. It won't be very long and you'll go right back to Jerusalem. And you can read about these false prophets in Jeremiah chapters 27 and 28. God addresses them in this letter, verses 8 and 9 of Jeremiah 29. He says, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. So God's telling them, don't listen to them. They may tell you that you're going back to Jerusalem quickly, but you are not. That's a lie. I think about in our culture, media in many ways is whipping people into a frenzy, making people really angry, oftentimes spreading misinformation, sometimes just half-truths, sometimes it's outright lies, just, just getting people into a frenzy. And that's essentially what the false prophets were doing back then as well, that they were kind of like the media outlets, but spreading half-truths and at times outright lies. And God is saying, don't listen to them. You exiles, you're going to be in Babylon for a long time. This is not a vacation. This is exile. And so build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children. And you see, so he's basically saying, live your life there, but there may be a change of perspective that is needed because you're not going to be there for just a short time. So don't expect a quick fix to your situation. I think this is a message that we need to hear in our own lives as well because we look at the culture around us. There is a lot that's going on that regardless of your political persuasion, I mean, really for even people who are not Christians, there's a lot going on in our society that is very disconcerting. And especially from a biblical perspective, there's a lot that makes it very clear that this society, Christians don't have home field advantage here any longer. And there is a temptation perhaps to look for a quick fix, but the reality is culture has been shifting for a long time. You look at the dynamics of what's taking place today. For instance, the spiritual dynamics. Remember, a 12% decrease in the last 10 years of those who claim to be Christian. That has its roots, not just in the last few years. That has its roots back further. I think about how it has its roots just in what's been taking place for several decades of changes in technology, changes in the busyness of families that affect people's spiritual lives today. I back up to the 1980s and 1990s and think about how the popular psychology being disseminated through the schools back then and through churches even and just the style of ministry that oftentimes prioritized entertainment at times over substance or that the psychology and the ministry was focused on making people feel good about themselves, how that continues to have ramifications today. You back up even further into the 1960s with the sexual revolution and with these movements that are very anti-authority, authority of all types, including church authority and divine authority, kicking back against that. That is still having an influence today. And you can go back even far, farther. We have to understand that what's happening today, even though the, the pace of, of cultural change is accelerating, the dynamics that we are experiencing here today did not come about quickly. And so we need to be careful not just to look for a quick fix, 
to change the dynamics of society that have been very complex and developing over the course of time. Because if we are looking for a quick fix, whether a quick political fix or a quick religious fix, thinking, oh, if we just do this, the church, if we just have this program or this event, then things will be changed. Lots are good. If we're looking for a quick fix and we're depending on that to change things, lots are good. We're going to get frustrated. We're going to get disillusioned. We're going to get angry. We may even begin to question, God, where are you in this? Because just like the people in, in Babylon at that time, we can't just be looking for a quick fix to change things. But God is still active and he still has a role for us and hope even now. For instance, we see in verse 7 of Jeremiah 29, he says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So this is key number three for engaging our culture. It's to work and pray for God's shalom to be experienced in the culture. God's shalom. That's a word you may not hear every day, but it actually occurs three times in verse 7 of Jeremiah 29. You hear this word repeated, welfare, the welfare of the city. Pray for the welfare of the city. And other translations uh, translate that as peace and prosperity. Those words, welfare, peace, prosperity, they are all translated in the Hebrew word, shalom. Uh, This last week I realized, I think I have a favorite word. Do you have any favorite words? Until this last week, I never even thought about having a favorite word. I mean, a lot of times you have a favorite sports team or you have a favorite color or a favorite book of the Bible or a favorite Bible verse. I realized, I think I have a favorite word, and that word is shalom. I've known the word shalom for a long time, but it just struck me. I love that word shalom. Shalom is the idea of wholeness and vitality that people experience when everything is functioning the way it's supposed to in relationship to God. And when there is shalom, from it flow joy and peace and hope and unity and truth and life. People flourish when there is shalom. It's such a comprehensive word. We do not have an English word that's equivalent to shalom. The most common translation is peace, but it's so much more than just a lack of conflict. It's whole flourishing and vitality and wholeness. And God says, work and pray for, God, for his shalom to be experienced in this Babylonian culture. And that is just shocking. It's a, it's a crazy idea that God wants Babylon to experience shalom. But that's what he says. Verse 7, Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to, to the Lord on its behalf. For in its shalom you will find your shalom. And this is revolutionary. It's really a, a, perhaps a paradigm shift for how we view culture around us. Certainly would have been for the people of Judah in exile in Babylon. Because God is saying, you know what, your, your perspective should not be to hate the Babylonians. Your perspective is not to be fat, fighting a culture war against the Babylonians. No, instead, you are to basically bless the Babylonians. Work and pray that they will flourish. And in this, you can really see the heart of God. That he wants people to flourish and not to be condemned. He wants people to flourish. It's the same heart that we see in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the heart of God. That's how much God loves the world. He gave his only son. And the life that's available through Jesus is not just to get out of hell free card for eternity. 
It's to transform our lives even here and now. Jesus said in John 10, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. This is life that that begins now, that begins to realign us with God, to reconcile us with God, and then to cause us to experience glimpses of shalom, glimpses of heaven on earth, even in our lives here and now. So this really shows the heart of God, that he wants people to flourish. He's made a way through Jesus on this side of the cross for people to experience that. Now, throughout this series, we've been talking about how the kingdom of God serves as the overarching framework for understanding the entire biblical storyline and also understanding everything that God's doing in world history. But when you think about the kingdom of God, I think it's also important to understand that the chief characteristic of God's kingdom is shalom. That shalom is the chief characteristic of God's kingdom. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 9, God's speaking through Isaiah to help, help us learn about the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. And he says that Jesus is to be called the Prince of Peace. What is that peace? It's written in Hebrew. It's shalom. And in that same context, God is speaking about the, the kingdom that Jesus will establish. And he says of the increase of his kingdom uh, and his um, peace, of his government and peace, there will be no end. His government refers to the rule and that peace is shalom. Of the increase of his government and peace, shalom, there will be no end. And so when we pray to God, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're basically praying that God will establish his government, his rule, and his shalom in the world. Shalom is the chief characteristic of God's kingdom. And again, Shalom is the wholeness and the vitality that people experience when everything is functioning the way it's supposed to in relationship to God. Now, in order for this to happen, sin must be accounted for because sin destroys shalom. And that's why Jesus came, not just to be a good teacher, but ultimately to go to the cross, to die, to pay the death penalty that we and everyone deserve for our sin. He defeated sin and evil and death through his resurrection. And he passes that victory on to us when we come to faith in him. And so he defeats sin. And then in the the consequence of that, he brings shalom, little glimpses of heaven into our lives when we come to faith in Christ. And he wants to spread that shalom through us. And we are told, seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you. This means... That in our lives, in all aspects of our lives, as we're living our lives, that the goal should be to spread shalom. To help more and more people come to know Jesus and experience the type of life that's available when people are living in a way that follows him. That means that in our work, that we are to spread shalom. Help that to be a place where people experience flourishing and vitality that God designed them for. That in the way that we interact with others, whether friends or family or neighbors or co-workers or even strangers we interact with, that we are called to seek and pray for them to experience shalom. In the way that we use our money and our leisure time, the way we engage in politics, the goal is God's shalom. And you think about in culture. When you have a culture or society experiencing shalom, that culture will be characterized by righteousness and justice. That when there is shalom in society, people will be loving their neighbors as themselves. The weak people in that society will be supported. And those who are in poverty will be empowered to get back on their feet. 
That people of all races and ethnicities will have respect and value for one another. That, that people, all people, will have access to resources and opportunities to help them to thrive. That those who are struggling will, will receive care and support. That life and dignity will be cherished regardless of age or ability. That men and women will be passionate for integrity and for character, for healing and for reconciliation. That healthy families will be prioritized. That the environment and the economy will be treated in manners that will bless future generations, not just short-term good, but long-term benefit. And ultimately that God is enjoyed and exalted in spirit and truth in all things. And that the heartbeat of that culture, the heartbeat of that society will be what will help people thrive in the way that God designed. Now, God designed government to promote shalom. God designed families. As families are functioning the way that God designed them to, families create shalom among the people in that family and those who they influence. That churches are called to be conduits of that shalom to the world around us. The early church did this really, really well. They were not perfect but you look at how the gospel spread so rapidly through the Roman Empire, it was largely because the Christians were not just sharing the gospel about how to be reconciled with God, but they were ministering to people in very practical ways, bringing little glimpses of the kingdom, glimpses of shalom into their context. I even think about the work that we do here at Freedom's Church in light of shalom. Pretty much everything we do can be viewed through that lens of seeking and praying for shalom to come in the world around us. I think, for instance, why are we having these book studies? They're studying this book, Oneness Embraced, by Tony Evans. And we have 38 people involved in these four different book studies. Why are we doing these? It's talking about racial topics from a biblical perspective, racial reconciliation. I mean, it's a little bit risky even to step into that topic. Why are we doing it? It's because we desire shalom. For God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why, as a church, do we do things like Operation Christmas Child Boxes or these Thanksgiving blessing baskets? Because we want to see people experience shalom. Why do we have worship services? Why do we have classes and Bible studies? It's because we want people to grow in experiencing shalom in their relationship with God and also to, to be conduits for his shalom, his wholeness and vitality through Christ and the world around them. Why do we have Forever Families, our adoption and orphan care ministry? Why, through Forever Families, have we given over $100,000 to adoptive families to help support adoptions? Why do we have adoption support groups for parents of adoptive children? Why do we have Adoption Connection that just empowers and trains and networks families who have adoption as part of their family story? Why do families in this congregation provide foster care? Why do we have all these things? Why do we send money overseas to support orphan care ministries and help to prevent children from becoming orphans? It's ultimately this idea of shalom, people experiencing vitality that God designed. Why as a church do we have counseling available for people and provide accountability? Why do we help people with practical needs like with groceries as needed or help with rent or, or with utilities? Or why do we help people establish budgets in, budgets in their lives? Because we want people to experience more and more shalom. Why do we open up the church building for things from the broader community like blood drives or piano recitals? It's to help people experience shalom, flourishing, vitality, in all its different manners. 
Why do we send tens of thousands of dollars every year overseas for missions work? It's so that people to the ends of the earth can experience God's shalom. You know, there are a lot of issues in society that do not have quick and easy answers. But we are still called to work and to pray in that direction that society will experience increasing levels of shalom. We can't do it without God. We talked about this last week, that it's ultimately God who does that type of work. But we can plant seeds, we can water seeds, and trust God to make them grow. Now, there is one more key, a fourth key, for engaging our society. And I think it's such an important one. It's to cling to hope from God for a better future. Because the reality is our world is broken. The Bible does not hold out hope that society is going to suddenly become a godly utopia. So, but we can cling to hope from God for a better future. That's what God offers to the people in exile, and he offers the same to us. In Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11, in this letter, it says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That, that means back to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, shalom, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So these exiles in Babylon had the promise from God here that in 70 years, God was going to bring them back to Jerusalem. It was a promise that came from God that gave them a source of hope to cling to for the future. Now, God does not give that same type of specific promise uh, to America that he gave to Israel, but he does give that promise um, of a future hope specifically to Christians, to the church, his people, a promise of heaven that he will one day establish a new heavens and a new earth. And we have that promise that we can cling to. That even though this world is broken, we are to work for the shalom of this world, praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Work for that. Pray in that direction. Live out that shalom increasingly in our own lives. But cling to that hope of the future. And between now and that time when Jesus returns to establish God's kingdom in his fullness, we are called to live faithfully. Just like the, the people in the exile were called to live faithfully to God during that intervening time, we are called to the same. Live faithfully to God. Be a faithful presence to God in this world. Join him in the work that we see him doing in this world and be praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're going to close today's service with a song called, O Come to the Altar, which is a great reminder that to, that to experience shalom and vitality, we must come to Jesus. He welcomes anyone and everyone to come to him through faith and repentance. And it's also a great song that shows little glimpses of the shalom that God wants for us. So will you please join me in prayer as we prepare for the final song. Our Father, we thank you that you give us a hope and a confidence beyond this world. We live in this world that is so broken, that has so many challenges, that it causes us a lot of consternation at times. But we thank you that we can trust you, and we look forward to heaven when Jesus will return to establish his kingdom in his fullness. But between now and then, Lord, we pray that your kingdom will come. And your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, this week we all know that there's an election coming up. Millions have already voted. Tuesday is a, is a big day in, in the life of our nation. And Lord, we pray for this nation in which we live. We are called to pray for the, the peace, the prosperity, the shalom of this place in which we live. And so, Lord, we pray for that. We pray, Lord, 
that the outcome of the election will be an accurate representation of the votes. We know that there is some concern about that. We pray that the votes will be accurately tallied and counted. Lord, we pray for a peaceful transition of power. And Lord, we pray for whichever person serves as next president, that you will give them wisdom to lead. We pray for the shalom of this nation and that the president, we know that we're thankful, Lord, that the government of the United States of America is so much bigger than just the president. But we know the president still plays a big part. And so, Lord, we pray that you will give the president, give Congress, give, give uh, justices of various sorts wisdom to lead and govern in such a way that will lead to shalom, Lord. I pray for a revival in this country, that, that people will turn back to you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, I pray for your people. We are called to be a church, to be citizens of heaven before we are citizens of every, any entity of this earth. And Lord, I pray that regardless of the outcome of what happens this week and beyond, Lord, that we will follow you and represent you faithfully that we will have wisdom in how to interact with others. I know that there will be followers of yours that are encouraged by the outcome of the election and followers of yours who are discouraged. And some who will have very conflicted thoughts even if their particular candidate they voted for wins. And so, Lord, please give us wisdom in how to navigate all these things well. And Lord, we pray again that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you that you give us a hope beyond this earth. But in the meantime, before we're in heaven, we pray that you will give us wisdom to navigate well all the, all the challenges that we face. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to join together in singing to Jesus.